We'll be in Matthew chapter 17 this morning. And if you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, we'd love to get that from you. Our deacons will be walking up uh, the aisle to collect those from you. And that would be a, a wonderful blessing to go to pray with you and for you in the coming week. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. There are a number of debates that we might have over the course of our lives, a number of things that we might agree to disagree about, different opinions, whether it's sports teams, whether it's Ford or Chevy, whether it's restaurants, whether it's any number of things, best color, whatever. But the most important thing about us, whatever those other disagreements or agreements might be, the most important thing about us is our understanding of God and who he is. You've heard, you've heard us mention before that, that, the mo, that A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the, mo, is the most important thing about us. Not NFL, not college football, not anything else, but the, the most important thing about us, all the other things uh, aside, the most important thing about us is what we believe about God. And when we look at what scripture has to say about that, we get a number of different answers, not competing answers, but complementary answers to the question, who is Jesus? You should imagine that we, we're all looking at the same thing. We have different vantage points. Perhaps someone is sitting over here looking at this thing, or I'm sitting over here looking at the same thing, and Jared's sitting over there looking at the same thing. We're all looking at the same thing with different vantage points, and they're all complementary to each other. And when it comes to scripture, we see the same thing when it comes to who is Jesus. All the scripture points to Jesus, different vantage points, but they don't compete against each other. They don't contradict each other, but rather they complement each other and they support each other. And so again, who is Jesus? Just in the gospel of John alone, we see all these incredible statements and these facts about who Jesus is. We find out that Jesus heals people, like in John chapter four and five. Jesus heals people. We also know that Jesus takes a little bit of bunny bread and some small fish and he feeds thousands of people later on in the gospel of John and John uh, chapter six. We know that Jesus walks on water. We know that Jesus healed the blind man in John chapter nine. We know that Jesus in John chapter 11 tells Lazarus who was dead to stop being dead. He raises people to life. So there's all the, and that's just in the gospel of John alone. Different vantage points, all complementary uh, to who Jesus is. And this morning, I want us to look at another vantage point to who is Jesus, and that's in, that's in Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew 17, which we've already read, but who is Jesus? It, what comes into our minds when we think about who Jesus is? Is he a guy that just said a couple of nice things that we should try to emulate and maybe uh, uh, implement in our lives whenever we find it convenient? Or is there something more to who Jesus is? Is he worthy of our devotion? Is he worthy of our lives? I think the question, the answer to that is a resounding yes. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see what scripture has to say about that. And so in Matthew 17, obviously the beginning, to the context of this is Matthew 16. And that, this context is important because in Matthew 16, uh, as we lead up to 17, he's talking to the disciples and he's telling the disciples, you need to be aware of all the false teaching that's going on around. And so there, you have these religious leaders who were adding things to the law and they, were, and they were putting up all this red tape and these hoops for people to jump through in order to follow God. And so Jesus is saying, you need to be aware of that and to beware of those false teachers. And then he asked the disciples, well, sit that by way of conversation, he asked them, who? Who did everybody say the Son of Man is? And he's speaking to himself. 
and the disciples mostly get it wrong, but Peter, of all people, Peter gets it right. And he, I picture him just kind of standing up in front of the group, and he points to Jesus and says, you're the Christ. It's an incredible statement in and of itself. And then Jesus kind of diverts from that and talks about, says to Peter, yeah, you're right, but there's more to that. That not only am I the Christ, but I'm also going to be the Messiah, the Christ, the same word. I'm going to be the Messiah that dies, which is nothing they would have ever expected when it came to the Messiah. The idea of a dying Messiah was not something they would have ever imagined or made up for that matter. And so he said, the son of man is going to be killed and raised again on the third day in verse 21. And of course, in verse 22, Peter famously rejects this. And I love this. He rebukes Jesus. I would love to have seen that from a fly on the wall kind of thing. He rebukes Jesus and said, Jesus, you're crazy. And then in verse 24 of Matthew 16, Jesus says some of the most challenging things I think we we might ever hear. This is not a way to build a church as far as what we're used to in America. This is not a, what might be called a seeker-sensitive thing to do. This is not something that's going to win you a lot of followers, if you're on social media, a lot of subscribers. This is not something that's going to build a large following. He said, if you want to follow after me, you need to die to yourself and then follow after me. You need to get rid of all things, take up your cross and follow after me. And then he goes on to say, but what did it profit? What did it matter if you have all the toys in the world, if your 401k is gigantic, if you've saved for retirement for not only you, but also your grandchildren, you, he who has the most toys win is what the idea in our world today. And Jesus says, what does it matter if you fulfill the American dream, if you did all that you think you wanted to do, and yet at the end of the day, you've lost your soul? It's a really powerful question there. Of course, the answer is, it doesn't matter at all. Those things don't compare at all. And then, in verse 28, he says, truly I say to you, Matthew 16, 28, this is the context, that truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. This is where we're at now. In Matthew 17, this, this son of man coming into his kingdom, son of man was one of his favorite references for himself, rooted in the Old Testament, a lot of Old Testament stuff baked in there. And this, what we're reading in Matthew 17, is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. So here's the first thing I wanted to see this morning. You can follow along in your answer. First, I wanted to see in verses 1 through 2, the glory of Jesus. That's what we see here in this passage, the glory of Jesus. We see that Peter, James, and John were the only other disciples there. And and these three men were were interesting because they were kind of Jesus' inner circle. He had 12 disciples, of course, and of these 12 disciples, these three were like an in-group. They, they spent more time with them. They saw things that the other disciple didn't see. They were witnesses to other uh, miracles that the other disciple did not see. And one of those things is here in this passage. But more significantly, I want you to see in verse 2 what happens. Not only who's there, but also what happens. And what happens is absolutely incredible. In verse 2, it says that while Jesus was praying, he transfigured. Now that word transfigured is a really interesting one. And I want you to remember with me many years ago when you were in grade school and you were taking biology, whatever it was called in grade school and elementary school, and you started learning about the different life cycles of things. And you found out 
about caterpillars, these weird, gross-looking bugs, I don't know if it's a bug, whatever it is, weird uh, creatures, and they travel really slowly, and then they have something, they go, they go into a cocoon, and they hang out in there for a couple of weeks, and then once they leave the cocoons, they're not a caterpillar anymore, what are they? The butterfly. Glad you guys paid attention that day in school. That, that word there, you might remember, is metamorphosis. That's the process of metamorphosis. That's where we get this word from. We get the word metamorphosis from the same Greek word that's being used here of Jesus when it says that Jesus was transfigured. The same word used there. Now, what did that mean for Jesus? I don't think that means that Jesus involved himself up into, into a cocoon for a couple of weeks. That's not what he's talking about. But there's more, something more significant going on here. It says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. His clothes became white as light. But look at that first part of that, what, what this means, transfiguration, this metamorphosis. It says that his face shone like the sun. So then I asked myself, where have we seen that before? Well, we see that in Exodus, Exodus chapter 34 and Moses, who we're going to talk more about in just a moment. But Moses, after going up on Mount Sinai, and he gets the Ten Commandments, he walks back down after spending over a month there, and what, what happened to him? His face shone like the sun. His light, and, it, and excuse me, his skin had light that was emanating from it to the degree that people were scared to death of him. They didn't want to come close to him. They put a, a blanket over his face so that they, they would be shielded from it. And it's interesting because the text in Exodus 34 seemed to imply that Moses didn't quite know, like he didn't realize it. And so like if you, maybe you work on your car and you're changing the oil or something like that, you might put like a headlamp on that you can, go, you can better see the inner workings of the car. You know that you're wearing the light and you can see it. It doesn't seem like Moses had a headlight on, but rather it was just coming out from his skin, coming out from his body that he may not even realize that, was there, that it was there. Whatever it was, the main point here is that Moses did not put this light on himself, but rather it was put on him by God. That the very fact that he spent well over a month with God on this mountain, that, that the result, that's the effect of him spending time with them. This light was transferred onto him. But what's different is that Jesus doesn't spend 40 days on a mountain to get, to get this. That for Moses, the light was put on him. For Jesus, the light came from him. Amen. And if you think about it, we see this again through Scripture in John chapter 8. Uh, John chapter eight when Jesus called himself the light of the world. He called himself the light of the world, and here we see, we see it in picture. That here he'd given a glimpse of his glory. His face shone like the sun. His, white, his clothes were as white. We see that in the book of Revelation as well. Glimpses all over the place, these little puzzle pieces, as it were, of Jesus' glory all throughout Scripture. But not only do we see the glory of Jesus, we also see the authority of Jesus in verses three through eight. We see the glory of Jesus. We also see the authority of Jesus. And look, look at who shows up in verses three through four. It's quite a pair. It's quite a pair. He has Moses and Elijah. Those guys have been dead for well over 800 years at this point. And they show up here. And if you think about it, who do they represent? Well, you go back to the Old Testament and the top three positions to hold, the top three jobs to hold were prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings. And so we, have, we know that Moses, who represented the law, 
and Elijah represented the prophets. And those two, in and of themselves, they basically, they basically represent the entire Old Testament. Want to know what the Old Testament's about? You look at those two men. They represent it. And Moses, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you'll notice that when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're constantly referring to Moses. Well, Jesus, Moses said this. What do you say about that? Moses said that. What do you say about this? Over and over again, that he is someone who is incredibly, incredibly important. But then also we have Elijah. Elijah was one of the great prophets who God used to reach out to the people. Like he lived this incredible life that led to him. That uh, Remember in 2 Kings chapter 2, that Elijah is one of the few men in Scripture who doesn't actually die. That he's just going on a walk in the neighborhood. And God comes down and uh, brings him up into heaven on a fiery chariot. And his walking partner is just kind of bewildered and kind of moved on from there. Like, so, so he never actually died, but God raised him up into heaven on this, on this incredible fiery chariot. But what's interesting is not only do these two men have the Old Testament in common in the sense that they represent the Old Testament, but they also had very equal experiences when it came to, to the relationship with God. And here's what I mean by that. In Exodus in chapter 33, Moses, again, is on Mount Sinai. And in verse 18, Moses had the audacity to ask God, said to God, I want to see your glory. And what did Moses say? Oh, excuse me, what did God say? He says, no. No, can't do that. It's not safe for you. So I'm going to pass by. I'm going to hide you in this rock, and I'm going to pass by. You can get a little bit of a glimpse. Well, then some years later, in 1 Kings 19, Elijah, that's Moses, Elijah is on the same mountain, same exact mountain in 1 Kings 19, and the same mountain, a different name. It's Sinai for Moses, it's Horeb for Elijah, it's the same mountain, different name. And Elijah has a similar experience, that he asked God to see his glory, and when God passes by, he hides them in the rock, and there's just so much violence that the rocks literally fall apart. The mountain literally falls apart, an earthquake of sorts. Both of them wanted to see God face to face, and they were prevented. Both of them were on the same mountain, said, I want to see God face to face, and God says, no, you can't handle that. It's not safe for you. I'm going to protect you while I pass by. And then 800-something years later, they they see Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God in the flesh, face to face. They saw the glory and the power of God on display, and here... In this moment here, in Matthew 17, they see it again. So what does this mean for us? Well, this means that, if, that we don't have to wonder what God is like. You ever wondered that before? I think we all have. What is God like? What is God not like? What, what did God care about? What is, what is important to God? If we want to know what all that is, we look to Jesus. It's not a mystery. And this is what the writer of Hebrews would get at in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1, verse 3. And so Moses and Elijah, the two heavyweight pinnacles of the Old Testament, they show up, and this is indicating that there's something very significant going on. So what is going on? First we see who shows up, and then we see what is said here. We see what's said in verses 5 through 8, and we see three voices in this, um, this situation. Three voices in this situation. First we see Peter, of course. And in the middle of this conversation, in the middle of Jesus having this conversation with 
these two men, Peter speaks up, because who else would it be? And he says, Jesus, it's a good thing that we're here. This is incredible. I've got some cots with me. Let's set up shop here for a little bit so we can just hang out and just linger. Let me make a pallet here so we can just lay here and just watch and just absorb everything that goes on. That he wants to prolong this experience as much as possible. And of course, why wouldn't he? Now, there might be something more going on to this. And there's a possibility that he might be thinking of Malachi chapter 4. And in Malachi chapter 4, this is God talking about how the great day of the Lord is coming. And that when the great day of the Lord comes, that he's going to enact justice on all the evil in the world. And that when, before he does that, though, he's going to send Elijah. Elijah's coming at the precursor to all these things in Malachi chapter 4. And so Peter, being a very devout Jew, he may have had Malachi chapter 4 in his mind. It's possible. That's the first voice was Peter. The second voice we hear is a voice from the cloud. We hear a voice from the cloud. But before that, did you notice a really interesting word here? It says that the cloud overshadows them. And some translations use the word enveloped. I think it's a really poetic way of putting that. Enveloped. And so when I picture this in my mind, I, I think uh, back to basically what every morning drive had been for me in the last month. If you leave her in the morning, it seems like it's been over the last month, there's been a lot of fog. I'm having to drive like 20 miles under the speed limit, which no one ever enjoys, and I'm, because I can only see like 15 yards in front of me. I can only see around me a very short distance, and everything else is just completely cut off. I think that's the kind of stuff that's going on here, that the cloud came in and it's to cut them off from the rest of the world. And we hear this incredible voice says something very interesting. It says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Where have we heard that before? Well, we hear that at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. said a couple of chapters before. When Jesus is getting baptized, the heavens open up and the Father speaks. What's interesting is that at that moment in Matthew chapter 3, that's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the Father speaks, and here, at a very significant turning point in Jesus' ministry, the Father speaks again. He says, listen to him, but that's not what he adds here. He didn't say that at the baptism. Everything is the same as in Matthew chapter 3, except in this time, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and then he adds, listen to him. Now, why would that be important? I think that's important for a number of reasons. Not, uh, one of which is that we're a society, back then and now, we're a society that's looking for answers. We have all these answers, or even questions, rather, we, we're in need of answers. We have all these questions that we're in need of answers. We're looking for answers, looking for answers, looking for answers, and we're just grasping at straws trying to find them. And God here says that Jesus alone has the answers. In case you were wondering, the self-improvement market, which I know you are, the self-improvement market is worth $13.4 billion, with a B, dollars in the U.S. alone. The self-improvement market is worth $13.4 billion in the U.S. alone. That's divided up by apps on your phone. That's, like, that's $750 million that people buy on apps. Uh, personal coaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching, $2 billion. 
books and audiobooks are over 600 million and 2 billion for speakers. That the speakers, really, it's really the top 17 main ones, 17 main speakers collectively are pulling in $2 billion on how to improve your life. And they're going to give you all sorts of timeless, unique, refreshing, one-of-a-kind insight like you need to get more sleep. You need to watch your diet. More protein, less carbs. I'll, I'll take the money later. Like they're they're going to give you all the sorts of uh, really incredible advice. But here we see, again, that only Jesus has the answers that we're looking for. Only Jesus had the answers that we're looking for. And the issue, I think, with our society, and if we're honest with ourselves at times, is that we look at Jesus as something we can just pick and choose. We like what he says about this, but mm, you know what? He kind of dropped the ball on that one. We like what he says here, but maybe not so much there. So we like the golden rule. People don't even go to church, and they know that one. People don't even read the Bible when they know that one. Do unto others that you would have them do unto you. We like that. That sounds nice. That sounds pretty. But what, what don't we like? We don't like that Jesus specifically says that marriage is between one man and one woman. He dropped the ball on that one, right? What do we like? We like what Jesus said about helping the poor. We like that one. We can all get on that one. But we don't like when he says that he's the only way to the Father. That's a little bit bigoted. We've come a long way since then, right? And so we live in a society that very much picks and chooses, but God did not allow that at all. We must take what Jesus said seriously. Would you notice how the, how the disciples respond in verse 6? In verse 6, here's what they did not do. They did not go out and write a big book about it and sell it to Lifeway for millions of dollars. They fall down in fear. They encounter Jesus, and they fall down in fear. Why? Because I think when you encounter the living God, that's probably the only correct response. That you realize that there's something different here going on. There's something unlike this God that's that's different than anything else in this world. There's There's a sense of purity and goodness, and dare I say, holiness, about this guy that I am not. And because I am not, the only thing I can rightly do is to fall down in fear. And we see this all throughout Scripture. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 17, falls on his face. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 1, John, and Revelation 1, they both fall down on their faces. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees God high and lifted up. And what does he do? He starts talking about how unworthy he is. He says, woe is me, for I'm unclean. How do you know that you're unclean unless you, unless you see something that is clean? What's interesting about Isaiah chapter 6 as well is that we, we learn all sorts of things about God in Scripture. We know that God is love. We know that God is, that, that peace is with God, that God is a God of peace, that God, that God is a God of mercy, as we just sang just a moment ago. But out of all the attributes of God that are repeated, and all the ones I just mentioned are love, peace, all those things are are repeated all throughout Scripture. Only one of them is repeated three times in a row. And it's Isaiah chapter 6 where it says that God is holy, holy, holy. That is the only attribute of God that is repeated three times in a row. Why? Because when they wrote the Scripture, 
They didn't, they didn't do all caps when they wrote stuff down to emphasize things. They certainly didn't have emojis back then if you're, when you're texting your friend. They didn't have all these, so if they wanted to emphasize something, they would repeat it. And the only attribute of God that we see repeated three times, which is to say the utmost, is that God is holy, that God is set apart, that God is not like me and not like you. And so of course the disciples react this way. They see that God is holy, they know that they are not, so the only right response is to acknowledge that and to, and to bow in reverence. But look at what happened in verse 7. In verse 7, this is the third voice. The third voice here is the voice of Jesus. And it's that he, he, he walks over to them, he touches them. And he says, rise and have no fear. And the text literally says, they saw no one but Jesus alone. And so the emphasis here is that they only saw Jesus. They look up at him, they're separated from the rest of the world, and the only person they had their eyes on, the only person they can see, not the other disciples, the only person they see is Jesus. That when we are in the hand of Jesus, we have nothing to fear. He says elsewhere that, that if you are in his hand, nothing will snatch you out of his hand. When you are in the hand of Jesus, nothing will snatch you out of your hand. Now listen, your grip might loosen up every once in a while. You might have some, some moments of doubt and insecurity, and your hand might go loose, but his hand never does. Amen. So this past year and a half or so, my daughter, who will be three, just a few weeks, incredibly, um, she's been taking swimming lessons at the Gamble's house. And, they have, and she has so much fun. And, we, and she'll swim along with my son. And toward the end, we'll, sometimes we'll go there on our own and they have a diving board, which is something I always wanted when I was a child. And they have a diving board. And what I'll do with my daughter, Addie, I will hold her, because right now she's a little bit of a daredevil, which good and bad, depending on the day. And she'll, she'll hold on to me. She'll wrap her legs around my chest and she'll hold on to me. And, she'll, and I, I'll jump off with her. I'll jump off the diving board with her. And she's holding on for dear life. And she's giggling and she's screaming. And she, she, her laugh is just infectious. And, it's just, and we have so much fun and we do it. And then she swims over to the stairs and we do it again. Over and, and I'm usually the one that taps out first. And here's, here's, I think about that. I think, you know what? Her grip loosens up sometimes. She's not as strong as I am but I'm stronger than her. And so no matter how, she might every once in a while, she just she'll go free to the wind and throw her hands up, but I've still got her. I'm still holding on to her. So as, long, as long as I'm holding on to her, as we're jumping off, she's safe. The same thing comes with Jesus, that when we are in the hand of Jesus, our grip might loosen for any number of reasons. But when Jesus says that nothing will snatch us out of his hand, he means it. And as strong as you, as you think you might are, that you might be, he is stronger. He's stronger. That peace is found only in Christ. Security is found only in Christ. And so when Jesus says, have no fear, he's saying, I'm in control. And the question is, do we believe that? He's asking the disciples that, and he's also asking us that. Do we truly believe with all that's going on in the world today, that Jesus truly is in control. Amen. We see the glory of Jesus. We see the authority of Jesus. And the last thing we see is the intent of Jesus, the, the mission of Jesus. 
What's interesting is that all throughout the gospel that, that Jesus constantly tells his disciples not to tell other people that he's the Messiah. Don't do this. And I, and I, think, I, I think if you look at what they're, how they were thinking, how they processed that, I think they, don't, they had a hard time wrestling what exactly he meant by that. Because when he says it here, notice how they respond. They start talking about Elijah. But again, I think it goes back to Malachi chapter 4. They're having this, they, have, they remember Malachi chapter 4, where they, before the day of judgment, God is going to send Elijah down to prepare the people for the establishment of the kingdom. But here, Jesus explains, and the disciples understand at this time, that this prophecy, this Elijah, is, is actually John the Baptist. That John the Baptist was the new Elijah who was going to prepare the people for the kingdom of God. Which is why, again, going back to Matthew chapter 3 before the baptism, what, would, what was John the Baptist's message in verse 2? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That John the Baptist is the new Elijah. But more significantly, I think what the disciples miss here is in uh, verse 12, where Jesus says, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hand. The Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hand. And again, I mentioned earlier that the Son of Man is just this incredible phrase that's baked in the Old Testament that that Jesus loved to use for himself. And basically what he's saying there is that the, the Messiah that was promised all throughout the Old Testament the rescuer, the one who is going to rescue people and save people in the ultimate way, that's the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, that's me. Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. And in Luke chapter 9, I would encourage you to turn there with me. In Luke chapter 9, this is a parallel account of the same situation, of the same event. Luke writing it in his gospel. In Luke chapter 9, verses 30 to 31, Luke mentioned that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That, that word departure is really interesting. And when you and I think of departure, we probably think of going on a trip. We're leaving for the plane, that our plane is departing at such and such a time. And so we get there an hour beforehand, some of us four hours beforehand, whatever happened to be. We, we're thinking of a flight, we're thinking of a plane, and we're leaving for our departure. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus specifically is talking about his death. And another way of understanding that is to say that his death is not an accident. His death is planned. That Jesus' death is not an accident. It didn't catch him off guard. He was planned from the foundation of the world. We think about who Elijah was. We think about who Moses was. Elijah was a prophet, but he wasn't a priest. Elijah was a prophet, but he wasn't a priest. That he, that he spoke the word of God to, to people. He called them to repentance. He said, stop following these false gods and follow the true one. That truth isn't something that you and I create, but rather is revealed. That we need someone to tell us the word of God. This is one of the reasons why having this scripture in our own language is an incredible blessing. That we can read the very words of God that we need truth outside of ourselves. We can't just make it up as we go along. So Elijah was a prophet, but he wasn't a priest. Moses was both a priest and a prophet, that he was a prophet in the sense that he spoke the word of God to people from time to time again, that he was a priest and that he stood on behalf of the people, again, on, on Mount Sinai and other places, that we need, you and I need someone to stand on our behalf that we can't do it ourselves. We can't cleanse ourselves. 
we need a priest, we need a prophet. And as great as Moses was, as great as Elijah was, Jesus is greater. That Jesus is the greater prophet because he doesn't just say the word of God, he actually is the word of, the word of God. Amen. This is what John's getting at in John chapter 1, the very first verse of John's gospel, when he said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That all of scripture points to Jesus. This is another reason why in John chapter 1 again, in verse 45, when Nathaniel meets Jesus, he goes and he, and he goes to someone and he said, we have found him, speaking of Jesus, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That all of scripture points to Jesus. Not only is Jesus the greater prophet, Jesus the ultimate prophet, Jesus is also the greater priest. And he's the greater priest because he doesn't just offer sacrifices on behalf of other people. He actually is the sacrifice. He actually is the sacrifice. And not only is he the sacrifice, but he is, as the book of Hebrews says, the once and for all sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27 so he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. He doesn't just offer sacrifices, he is the sacrifice. Jesus is not only prophet, he's not only priest, but Jesus is also king. Who is Jesus? That's the question. He is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. And in Revelation chapter 19, we see this picture, verses 11 through 16, we see this picture of Jesus who is both victor and king. That he is called the king of kings and the lord of lords. And if you think about kings that we're used to, uh, uh, rulers, we don't have kings here, but rulers, authority figures, how do they tend or how have they historically ruled? Usually it's by force. Usually it's by coercion. But how did Jesus rule? This king, those kings rule by force. This king doesn't rule by force, but by sacrifice. This king rules by sacrifice, which is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, said the Son of Man, again, the Son of Man came not to serve, be served, but to serve. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But how did Jesus do that? Go back to that word departure in Luke chapter 9, verse 31. This is how he died it, by, by his departure. I mentioned a moment ago it's a very interesting word, and it is. The reason why it's an interesting word is that word in the Greek, literally, exodon. It's the same word as what we get for exodus. What was the exodus all about? Well, the exodus involved Moses, remember? Involved one of these two guys. And Moses was used by God to bring the people out from slavery to freedom, from death to life. That Jesus, his death is the greater exodus. That Moses led them, led them through physical water, they all went through it together, but in this exodus, only Jesus would be going through it alone. That Moses' exodus was physical, a literal physical, but Jesus' exodus is a spiritual one. This exodus, only Jesus would walk through it. Remember Elijah? Elijah goes from earth to heaven. 
and he spared death, Jesus came from heaven to earth to die. That Jesus' death is the greater exodus. That Jesus' death is where life is found. We tend, when we think about prophets, I mean, we think about priests, we tend, if you're like me, we tend not to like prophets because we don't like to be told what to do. That's not just a teenage thing, that's a human thing. We don't like the idea of a priest because if we're honest, we're not as bad as we think we are, right? The person I'm sitting next to is so much worse than I am. That coworker is so much worse than I am. For what we do, we spend all of our lives just looking at someone we think is worse than us. Instead of comparing ourselves to God, we can just compare ourselves to them. The fool's errand. We think we don't need anybody to, to cleanse us, but the fact is that we do. That Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king that you and I are looking for and that we need. And every other religion is that you have to work your way up to God, and only in Christianity does God come down to us. Rather than, than God leaving us to ourselves, he meets us where we are in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That we're in this world of darkness, just like the mountain. We're in this world of darkness, and Jesus, who is the light of the world, is the incandescent one that comes and brings light to it. So who is Jesus? That's who Jesus is. So why does this matter now? Why does this matter for me? It does matter now. But why does this matter for me at all? I think it matters both for the future and for the present. It matters for the future because Jesus being the Messiah changes everything about us. Jesus being the Messiah changes everything about us. That one of the only other times in the New Testament where we see this word transfiguration, metamorphosis, is in, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And this is the hope that you and I, believer, if you are in Christ, this is the hope that you and I have. This is why it matters. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled face, unveiled, did you catch that? Probably have Moses in mind for that. With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, same word there, transfigured, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That in here in this passage, we are being promised that in Christ, you and I, not because of our own strength and our own power, but because purely by the grace of God, we will become more and more like Christ each and every day until we see him face to face. That's why that matters for the future that you don't need a self-help book. You don't need a self-coach to make... Listen, I don't need to be a better version of me. I need to be a new version of me. I need to be a new creation, which is what I have in Christ. That's the only, that's the only hope that I have. The Christian isn't called to improve himself, but to die to himself. It matters for the future, but it also matters for the present. What's interesting about the life of Peter is that, again, for, for Peter and the rest of us, that, that this here affects him the rest of his life. Which is why in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, this is years later, he writes about this event. He said that we were eyewitnesses. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It changed everything about him, and he couldn't shut up about it. The rest of his life was affected by his relationship with Christ. Why? Because Jesus is prophet, he's the priest, and he's the king. Who is Jesus? He's the prophet who has the words that we need. He's the priest who stands before us and God. And he is the king who is fully worth of our devotion 
and are dying to ourselves and following after him. And the question for us this morning is, do we desire to follow Jesus? That's the question for us. He's the prophet, he's the priest, he's the king. And when we are following him, we can look at all the stuff going on in the world and we can see all those things going on, but then we can look to Jesus and have security and peace because we look at Jesus and we hear his voice and he said, rise and have no fear. Because elsewhere he says, have no fear, don't fear, for I've overcome the world. And it's only because he had overcome the world that you and I can truly have hope. So the question for our two questions, who is Jesus? And have you followed him this morning? He has rescued us from death to life, from slavery to freedom. Are you walking in that freedom this morning? Amen. I'd love to pray with you after, as we sing this last song. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for your goodness and your mercy, and your steadfast love, and for the hope that we have in Christ. That we need a prophet to tell us the word of God, and Jesus is that prophet. We need a priest to stand on our behalf, and Jesus is certainly that priest. And we also need a king, because we cannot be kings of our own lives. Father, we, help you, we ask that you would help us to see that Jesus is all three of those things and so much more, that we would follow in obedience because you are worthy of our entire lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing.